All right, guys. We have a rambling podcast that's not so different than normal, but we are going to talk a little bit about culinary infidelity, not with your partner per se, but with your culinary gadgets. And I think Christian and I stumbled upon, I stumbled upon, we have theorized, we tested hypothesis, and we found out that it's true that most people in their kitchen practice polygamy. Am I wrong, Chris? <laughs> no, man. I've had a. We, we talked about this. We didn't talk about it in the segment, but uh, off the air, you and I were talking about some pretty gnarly one night stands we've had with some culinary equipment. We used once and never saw again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, things in my kitchen that I don't even know their names. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I didn't catch your name. I used you to grate this potato, but I have no idea what your name is. You're constantly trading things around. You're, you know, this is, this is, this is, I think, a, a deep conversation about the instant pot. And uh, I think we're, we're, hold on to your seats because I think we really had a breakthrough here. I know you know certainly feels that way. Um, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit about astrology report. Um, I think we're, we've announced that today is going to be our, our, our endeavor to uh, create a fortune cookieology and maybe even our own astrology chart. Should be good. I think we'll have fun making that. We go into a little bit about, again, being a curmudgeon, not a surprise, about having to say hello to your neighbors when you don't necessarily want to, or in general, like just walking around, say, New York City. I think New Yorkers have it right. You don't really talk to anybody. You don't really wave at anybody it's more about you do you and i do me and like that's the way it is and i feel like now that i'm in los angeles it's a very different vibe everybody wants to be friendly and i still don't know how to deal with that and then we're, we're gonna get in a great conversation with tunde way uh we talk about food discovery and a top five where to eat in, in america and uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's a really good conversation. Enjoy. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Demo Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always. We are remote. We're not in the Spotify studios, but we're in the Major Demo studios, and everyone is in a, in a different part of the row. You know, it's here somewhere. Chris is upstairs, and I don't know where Gabby is. And then we're going to have Tunde Wei, the artist slash chef i guess a bunch of other things too uh from lagos uh we're gonna have him on and he's gonna talk about some of the things he's been working on and we're gonna do a top five and then we're gonna get into a quick buy and sell with me and ying before that wanted to talk about an old friend of ours normal pot started that at the beginning of the pandemic where I was just buying random things from the internet and testing them out and seeing if they were thumbs up or thumbs down. And we called it normal pot because I got so sick and tired of the instant pot zealots. They're out there in full force. Hmm. I, I, I think it's as close to a culinary religion as I, I've ever faced. Um, maybe, maybe as potent as the Costco rotisserie chicken church. But um, they're a holding company, 
the private equity group that bought them, I believe it's Corning Investments or something like that, just declared Chapter 11. Chapter 11 is very different than Chapter 8. Chapter 11 means they're, they're, they're given some time to recalibrate and to protect some of their assets so they can get new credit and new financing. I'm sure they're going to be okay. I'm absolutely sure they're going to be okay. But I think one of the issues is that instant pot, because I call it Instapot. It's instant pot, which has led to normal pot because I made fun of it because it's basically a pressure cooker. That's all it is. A pressure cooker with really bad UI and UX. And it doesn't really cook rice that well. And you know what? All the things that it does really well, pressure cooker would do. And if you're not comfortable with a pressure cooker, which sometimes I admit I am not, uh, there are electronic pressure cookers that are very safe, very sound, and do the same thing. So, you know, it's been around, I think, 10 years or so. It has been mind-boggling at the success rate of it. But like so many things coming out of the pandemic, the things that were working really well during the pandemic and the lead-up are not working as well. And when you make something like a pressure cooker, if I just brought a pressure cooker, very unlikely that I'll need two pressure cookers. And they've offered a lot of attachments, et cetera, for the Instapot. I think you can air fry in it now. Um, There's a blender. There's all kinds of things to it. And the reality is, if you buy one, highly unlikely you're going to need another. So the sales have gone down dramatically. And another thing is Corning. Corning makes some of the best stuff. Pyrac, um, just glassware that are safe and beautiful to cook in. I love it. But I'd argue that the same Corning glassware that I have in my house is the same stuff that my mother used 20 plus years ago. It never goes out of style. It's always in use. So if you have some, do you really need to buy more? And what does this mean for Instant Pot? I don't know. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, coincidentally, I do want to bring back normal pot because it's a question of, do we actually need something? What is actually, in our opinion, useful? Um, and I don't know if that's always going to be the case. We may not come to a conclusion, but I think one of the things I would like to do is to start to review products to get a better understanding of the pros and cons. And it also dovetails nicely with some of the stuff that we're working on at Major Demo, creating equipment. And we'll be able to talk about that in a second. Something I want to keep very open in terms of what we're working on and how we're doing it. But normal pot. The first episode of Normal Pot that's not on social media is going to be right now. And we're going to talk about the Instant Pot. Chris Yang, were you surprised? By Instant Pot declaring bankruptcy? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those things. I'm, I'm glad you pointed out the difference between Chapter 11 and Chapter 7 or whatever they are. Because as a dumb, dumb... What do I call it? Chapter 8? <laughs> chapter 8, whatever it is. <laughs> as, as a uh, relative dumb, dumb when it comes to these things, I often see a company filing for chapter 11 and I'm like, Oh, they're going out of business. And then like the next month I see something that says files record profits and they're in control of the world. So I I'm glad you pointed that out, but I was shocked because we frankly, you know, Dave, you said you want to be open about all this stuff. You know, as we've been talking about making equipment, trying to bring tools to the home that, that we can, people can put into use to cook the things that you're talking about. One of the kind of models we often look to as a success was Instant Pot. Just thinking, wow, these—I think they're called potheads. <laughs> these these cultists, these Instant Pot pot potheads. 
And it was it was totally shocking to see this this happen. They don't really call themselves the potheads. Do they call themselves potheads with in uh, quotation marks? It's like a it's like it's I don't I mean like donuts and coffee, like a Thomas Teller. Is Thomas Keller the lead pothead? <laughs> he's the he's the biggest pothead of them all. Yeah. They're they're potheads. I don't know. But yeah, it's 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 surprising. Totally surprising. Speaking of Thomas Keller, how crazy was it that we just ran into him in Yonville? It's like it's crazy in one way and totally expected in the other. We were we were sitting outside breaking the law with Stanley Chang outside of the uh, <laughs> outside of the Heston Vineyards tasting room right on that main drag of in Yountville having a smoking cigars with uh you know aluminum chairs <laughs> basically on the stoop and who should walk by but none other than <laughs> Thomas Keller himself which is insane in the one way but also I guess if you're going to run into Thomas Keller on the street somewhere, it's probably going to be Yuttville. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. It was weird. It was just a funny, funny side note. But he said what we were doing was illegal. Um, <laughs> he, he said smoking is banned. And Sandy was like, no worries. I know the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Because Keller was like, you know, smoking is banned in all of Yuttville. And Stanley was like, don't worry about that, guys. Uh, well, I, I going back to the Instant Pot, Again, like the main reason why I don't like it is simply because it was promised that it will do everything, right? Like a set of Ginsu knives, it'll do literally everything. And I, I chafe at the idea that it's this unicorn of a gadget because the technology is nothing new. What is, I love pressure cooker technology. What bothers me was the fact that people would say, Oh my God, it's the best thing I've ever seen in my life. When it's been around forever. And I, again, that was my main sort of quip with it. And with people saying it cooks rice really well, it doesn't. If you just look at the way the electronic conductors are set up in the bottom, it almost burns rice all the time. And I know so because I cooked it quite a bit during the pandemic. Um, and it doesn't work that well. It works. It does a lot of things, but does it do it that well? Yeah. Right. But I also understand for people that might be in mobile camping, living in a, uh, you know, a situation where the kitchen might not be great for cooking, et cetera. I've seen enough of that. Uh, and it's extremely useful. And I got to say, Chris, we've definitely eaten crow on the air fryer, right? Yeah, unfortunately, we've eaten some big crow on the air fryer because I love that thing now. I mean, we're, we're more than willing to, to let our strongly held opinions go. The Instant Pot thing, I think that also bothered you. I mean, what you just said was, it's a pressure cooker. It's nothing more than a pressure cooker, but it claimed all of these uses. And, and, you know, it's like saying, uh, you know, I can, I can make Oreo cookies in this Dutch oven, which I guess I technically did could, but it doesn't make it good at doing that. I mean, the only thing the instant pot does not do is make Lembus bread, <laughs> the Elvish way. <laughs> well, you don't have fires for, for that, for that instant pot. They lie. <laughs> the, they can't make no Lembus bread. <laughs> you need nothing that Samwise Yamji would be excited to use. You need that Rivendell water. So no, man. you need that Rivendell water to make. Yeah, that. it's clean, clean. You need to keep that shit clean. Do you think that the when you say so, you know, you read the articles about Instant Pot filing for bankruptcy, and you know Peloton gets mentioned in the same breath, and you just said it was a pandemic boom. Do you think that it is a factor of a whole bunch of people who had never cooked before bought the Instant Pot in the pandemic? and have just stopped cooking again? No, if you buy it, 
you're probably not going to use it all the time. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like you use it and then you stop using it. You know, the way our children phase out of toys and dolls, right? Hugo right now is all about this uh, reindeer, Mm -hmm. right? And soon this toy reindeer will be forgotten to a new toy or he'll rotate back to the stuffed panda. And then they hug it and they love it like it's never going to like leave them. But they always get tossed aside, right? The land of, you know, toys that are needy. The same thing happens to kitchen gadgets. Mm -hmm. You can love your Instant Pot. But like most people have to understand they're polygamists in the kitchen. (laughs) They're fucking real polygamists. They're culinary polygamists. Right. You may have made that. They're open marriage all day long. <laughs> you may have made that long-term commitment to your instant pot at the altar, but pff, that went out the window. Yeah, you know, they're they're looking at all kinds of Air other things fryers, in that kitchen. Toaster ovens. Ooh, that sous vide machine ooh, looks hot. Ooh, <laughs> look at that cuckoo rice cooker. <laughs> ooh. It's so oh. shiny. It's so sexy looking. I was on a work trip and I ran oh into this God. juicer. Oh my God, it was so wonderful. Oh my God, look at that metal colander. <laughs> Man, Instant Pot can't do that. Shit. My Instant Pot used to do if that. I just got some, if I just got some quality solo time with that colander, mm, God. Before we go. Dear, dear God, just give me one date. Give me one date with that colander, and I will go to church every Sunday the rest of my life. Before we got married, my Instant Pot used to strain things for me all the time, and now it just doesn't even care. Doesn't even see things to be strained. Yeah. I mean, that's just the reality. We just did it. You know, uh, whether this shows up in The Economist or we win some <laughs> kind of prize, that's re- that remains to be seen. We just figured out why Instant Pot declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. It's because you may be monogamous in your sexual relationships, but you're a fucking polygamist mm-hmm. and, and believe in open relationships. In your kitchen. You're you're you a kitchen hoe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean I mean basically people realize like, oh, I love you, Instant Pop, but I can start another family over on the <laughs> other side of the kitchen too. <laughs> right. They're like, hey, I can cook eggs in my rice cooker. Mm. <sighs> yeah, I mean like normal pot, you're so boring, you're so frumpy. Go to the gym. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> Work on yourself. Your your man boobs are really growing, man. No, dude. Come on, Instant Pot. You need to get a refurb. I just don't know if I can love you anymore. You to- yes, it is about the, the 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 optics. It's not about the personality, Instant Pot. You got a great personality. <laughs> it's great, but I just can't. I can't quit you, Instant Pot. And that's basically what's happened. And in no no article about Chapter Eleven bankruptcy for Instant Pot did anybody, not one fucking journalist, point out to the obvious. No, nobody saw it. Nobody saw it. It was just Instant Pot. Instant Pot is super frumpy, and people got bored. That's I it. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense too, Chang. When you think about the pandemic, it was like, okay, during the pandemic, you and me, we were locked in together here. Nobody was going out to the clubs. You know, even you know was at home. Like, it makes sense. You stuck to your your instant pot. We're looking, looking through. It's okay. Pandemic it's dogs. okay. People just need to understand. It's okay to covet another culinary device. 
right? Hey, I bet you some people that chose Instapot are even going throwback, right? They're going throwback. They're going straight pressure cooker. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> they got to type. That's like, that's like dating your grandmother. So, you're like somebody, you're like your grandmother's friend or something like that. That's just like weird. That's fucking weird. It's like dating your, you know what I mean? I no, I don't. Grandmother's friend. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. I'm sorry. Or you're like, you're, it's like if a younger person is dating someone that's a senior. It's a May December relationship. You and your, yeah, right. Your right. So if I had a relationship with the Instapot, but you know, I saw this, this older model pressure cooker, right? Where, there was no electronic gadgets, but you put it over flame and a pressure cooker would work, mm. right? That's like dating someone older. Someone more experienced. Experience <laughs> that knows how to give pleasure in different ways. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Well, this is interesting because, I mean. You, you know, you. You know, saying absolutely not. Why not? You know, no, you guys need to stop. <laughs> why, why are you telling me? Why, why are you being against uh, the geriatric equipment line? Okay, first of all, you okay. can have new, the old school. The old school. You can have newer pressure cookers, right? Like, I, I get characterizing Instapot as frumpy, like that. I understand, uh, but a pressure cooker has so many uses and still handy today. And you can buy a new one off the shelf. They're not so always the grand grandmother's friend. Yeah. So is my grandmother's friend. <laughs> I think this is you're just proving the case, man. Just proving the case. Yeah. I don't know what you're yeah. talking about. I mean, I I think it's a little uh, everyone that's cheating on your Instapot, just come forward and just be honest, all right? <laughs> that the ethics and morality that you thought you had in your sexual life is your total deviant in your culinary kitchen domestic life. And that's the moral of the story of normal pots. We don't stop cheating on your instant pot. <laughs> it deserves better. That's how that's how bad it's become. I'm now backing the instant pot. It has to declare chapter 11 bankruptcy for fuck's sake. All right. Look what you've done. You've broken up. Put some respect on its fucking name. You've broken up our family. And look how sad the instant pot is here. It's just living by itself in this studio. Yes. It's just so sad. You kicked it out. Yeah. John Smith works with Mormonism, not with culinary equipment. It's living in its own cupboard all by itself here. Just watching TV and eating ice cream. It's a sad instant pot. Come on, get back together. Go give it a haircut. Yeah, go give it a haircut. Treat it out or not. Take it out. Give it a night on the town. Give it a spin. Spend some quality time. All right. And remember. This is like, you know, men and women. How the Instant Pot is communicating to you and you're communicating to it, very different mm. ways of how you receive that, okay? Men are from Venus, Instant Pot are from Mars. <laughs> <laughs> the Instant Pot only understands button pushes. Come on, guys. Okay. We've talked enough about that. I think we made our case. We're now pro team Instapot. That was which surprising. Is coming back strong. <laughs> really with surprising. No, no. I, I myself was not surprised. I was surprised that uh, we, we came to that. But I had this epiphany. I'm like, oh, my God. I got to protect her. Once you saw. I got to protect. Once you saw it as a spurned lover. As just a dedicated, faithful, spurned lover. We started to feel sympathy. 
This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So over the weekend, um, I was at, uh, I wouldn't say dinner, but somehow a couple of people stopped by and they're significant and others. And I made some food and I made a quip that I didn't realize was going to get me in trouble, but I basically took a giant shit on the idea of astrology <laughs> and tarot cards and the whole world of, uh, what is that world? Uh, yeah. You know. Crystals, thinking that I was hanging out with people that were on the same wavelength, but I was wrong. <laughs> they didn't want to believe in these things, and they kept on telling me that it's all about pattern recognition. I said, pattern recognition of what? That the stars are aligned and Pluto's here or whatever? I'm like, that doesn't get to the point of what I'm asking. Why does that matter, and how does it change your life and a horoscope is going to do these things. And again, I made the joke. You probably have crystals charging in the moonlight. And they said, we do dead serious. And, um, these are my friends. (laughs) And I immediately turned to grace and I said, we're moving to New York tomorrow. (laughs) We're moving to New York city tomorrow. I, and I said to, again, I would say close friends of mine. I would rather you tell me, that you are being audited by uh, Scientology, right? Like you're, you're literally a Scientologist now. To me, I would rather you tell me that than to tell me that you let the horoscope govern your life. And I now believe that I'm in the minority here globally, that most people follow the astrology charts. Am I wrong? Do you, Chris Yang? Uh, do I believe in astrology? And when people are like, "Oh, you're such a, you're such a Leo, you're such a Leo," I'm like, "What the fuck does that mean?" Uh, do I believe in astrology and crystals? I mean, I would like to think that we've been friends for long enough that <laughs> you know that I don't. Well, that's what I thought. That's what I thought too with my other friends. <laughs> no, dude, I don't. I don't believe this stuff. I mean, listen, I think that it's. If they told me they were anti-vaxxers and they were going to vote for RFK Jr., I probably would be more accepting of that. (laughs) I, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not into it. I understand the appeal. Do you understand the appeal? No. I I, want to know more, but really I'm just so um, perplexed 
uh, I would say, okay, so the answer to your question, though, are we in the minority of people who believe in it? Yes. Mm. Guess what? Let's ask you know and Gabby. Probably. I'm going to say the two of them believe in these things. You know, do you believe in astrology? Fuck no. No, never. No superstitions. Superstitions a little bit, but astrology, no. I, I can't do it. Guys. Gabby, don't. Gabby, I'm betting that you're a pro. What's Gabby? Gabby's even here. I'm here. I I am not a believer. I think it's pretty dumb, to be honest. <laughs> See, we're not necessarily. Well, how 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 are we batting a thousand percent? And I was batting like a hundred fifty average. No, but like I, I I had this I had this same exact experience uh, a week ago too. Probably sitting in a different room at a parallel time when I was talking to some friends, and I was like, "You believe this ghost shit?" people who believe in ghosts and then my prof- my friends proceeded to spend the next hour telling me all about their ghost experiences <laughs> i was like holy shit this is not the first time this has happened to me either ghosts astrology like people believe there are believers out there i i agree with you dave that more people believe than we thought for sure the textbook definition of astrology and this has nothing to do with astronomy very different fields <laughs> Very, very different fields. Can't even say one's chess or checkers, right? Uh, (laughs) Astrology. The ancient practice of studying the movements and positions of the sun, moon, planets, and stars and the belief that they influence human behavior. I will admit that my belief in the sciences and people that are much smarter than me in reason and logic, that is my sort of religion and faith, but I cannot place it in something where I could become an astrology uh, expert, I think. Do you think people who stuck... Because guess what? You know what? That's what my horoscope said. <laughs> then I'm going to change my ways. Do you, do you think that people who study space are sad that astronomy sounds so close to astrology and cosmology sounds so close to cosmetology. They just can't get their own fucking study that doesn't have something to do with something else. Uh, What do you think when they say it's about pattern recognition? I don't know. I think that, that they threw that at me thinking that, of course, this will get Dave on our side. But no. The argument that pattern recognition and seeing things that um, apply in culture in different parts of the culture in different fac- facets of one's life and all I don't even understand what the fuck they were talking about I said this doesn't make any sense to me this is just like I think this is so called I'm going to tell you what I'm, I want us to do Chris mm-hmm. Yang uh, I'm so upset about this that I am now going to make sure that we start a whole field of astrology okay. ourselves Okay, we're going to start it and I'm calling it fortune cookieology. Okay. I don't know if we're going to get it. I think we need, I, I'm with you. I want to make a simulator. I want to make a chat bot fortune cookie simulator. And we are going to now read fortunes and maybe who knows, maybe even we're going to get somebody to create a horoscopes for everybody. But we need them to be based on, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I think this is a great, this is a great uh, scam slash business model for us to take on. But astrology gets to say this is based on the position of the stars and the planets. So ours has to have some kind of 
basis that is not just well, us making yes. Well, uh, no, Chris, you're wrong because the basis is going to be how the cookie cracks. Oh, I like this. Right? Okay, great. I mean, we're going to read. We're going to read and determine the meaning from the actual breakage of the fortune cookie itself. Okay, and if we're selling the cookies, I'm on I'm fucking 100 on board. This is great. Yes, fuck yeah, we're going to sell <laughs> fortune cookies. And I'm going to tell you right now, I opened a fortune cookie, and this is what it says. Work with your destiny. Stop trying to outrun it. I mean, that's that's fucking wisdom right there, folks. <laughs> it's just sure. And let me tell you another Fuzzy one. Wisdom. What I just opened up. I don't think anything. This is the truest statement that's ever been said. And really, quite frankly, master of the obvious. But that's a whole nother point. A healthy body will benefit you for life. Think about that. Let that marinate. A healthy body will benefit you for life. I mean, frankly, so will an unhealthy body. My just life will just be shorter. So, I mean, not, not, not untrue, but it's fine. It's fine. So, um, we used to do this in DC. We used to give fortune cookies, but we had them with un, uh, unlucky fortunes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And on the back of the fortune cookies, everyone said, fuck you, Dan Snyder. Uh, Wait, <laughs> it came, it worked. Your fortune worked. came true, dude. It worked. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do this. And I think the, my favorite fortune that we, we tucked into those cookies was things will never change. <laughs> that, that's a, that's a strong, strong fortune. And I can't wait. I, I'll be honest. I can't wait to start this pseudo religion and like, like take this as far as we can. And uh, I'm going to let everyone know that that we're going to do this almost like a Nathan Fielder type uh, exercise. And I'm letting you know right now that everything we're doing is a hoax. It's not real, but we're going to treat it as such. We're going to see how far people can take this. And it's going to get so big, in fact, that even after people dig up this podcast and say, look, even he said it was a scam, it will still be a success. It'll be like, well, we're, we're, we're building the next herbal life. What you don't understand is God gave me these golden tablets that I buried in my backyard. <laughs> is that what happened with the golden tablets? Buried them? But, but, it's, but they transformed into a fortune cookie that I ate. And now I have bestowed by the power of God to give you astrology-like nuggets of wisdom to all listeners. This is going to change your life, right? Or not. If you get a things will never change, it just might not change anything. Nothing will change. That's a really good fortune, by uh, the way. Making horoscopes is going to be great. I know. It's just going to be terrific. Well, so many are, it's just, it's, it's frequency illusion. So once you say something, you'll, you'll notice it, and then it'll be true. And then our, our business will be a success. I love it. I'm just, yeah, I, I'm just letting it the record state. How did you leave it with these friends? Neither Chris Yang or I. <laughs> they sent me um, a, a whole screenshot of shit, and I put a, a laughing emoji <laughs> at it about taking it seriously. And I said, "No, no, 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 no." Oh, let me read you some. I know we're, we're running long, but uh, this, this is this is this is real. Um, let's see. The way of compassion, and this goes for Aries 2 to Libra 2, star to society. 
What was that? Code? It's the destiny of those on the way of compassion to learn to mute their own ego so that it drives that. So their drive, blah, 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 blah. I don't even know. You see, it's stuff like this. I don't, I don't even understand what the fuck they're talking about. The need for vanity and ego affirmation, the reward, the joy of giving of oneself. People who initially view these, I can't even, can't. What was the, wait, just the very first part you said? This is. What was the numbers you said? What, what did that say? <sighs> Crystals and gemstones. I don't, this is a magazine that they read. <laughs> and it's about the way of compassion. I don't even know. Can't even make this shit up. I mean, we're going to. So I just wanted to say, what are you supposed to, this is a, not even the, this is a, a, a mailbag to the public. What am I supposed to do with friends that believe in things that I refuse to believe? In? Should I cut them out of my life? Should I join the cult? I don't know. <laughs> it's just those two options. <laughs> Assimilate or die. You can't beat them, join them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, like charging your crystals is a real thing. So, so you buy a crystal and you charge it in the moonlight. Meaning you just put it outside. Like it's a transformer energon cube or something like that. Like I don't even know. Bah weep ground I weep mini bomb. And then you what do you do with the crystal once it's charged? You touch it? I don't know. Well, then I mean, frankly, I have to say, Dave, given how little you know about this, I mean you shouldn't judge it yet. Listen, if they told me that this is one of the the the, the lost palantir in Lord of the Rings, then they got me. All right. If I can come like speak with Aragorn. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm in. The seeing stones are not all accounted for. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know who may be watching. <laughs> all right. We'll take a break. Chris Yang. Mm-hmm. I have to say something about neighbors. In my neighborhood, I got to say that I'm not a big fan of saying hello to everybody. <laughs> Wait, just I need to parse this sentence. Is it specifically in your neighborhood that you're not a fan of or just generally you are being said hello to and you do not want to respond with a hello? I, I don't want people to say hello to me, number one. Okay. Like, what do I have to do to make it seem that I don't want to talk to them? I wear sunglasses. I wear a hat. I mean, do I need to start wearing masks outside again? Like indoors is one thing outside. I'll do that again. Like I, I want to make it very clear. Don't don't no contact with me. Don't don't say hello. Don't wave. That's what I would like. You're looking for some kind of way to visually signal to people that you are, you would prefer not to be greeted. And again, this is not just the curmudgeon in me. Having lived in New York City for 25 plus years, I think I can count on one hand I've spoken to my ne- next door neighbor mm. in any of the apartment buildings I've lived in. Versus what? What kind of frequency? What kind of frequency? 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 Are we talking about here in in California? Then people here want to talk. <laughs> want to talk? 
Like if somebody's outside with an, another neighbor and I'm making a right hand turn out of our driveway to in my car, they're talking and they're looking at me like, hey, let's talk. And I look at them like, why are you talking in the middle of the fucking street? Maybe I'm in, maybe I'm late. Maybe I'm busy. What am I supposed to tell them? Mm-hmm. I can't chat because I got shit to do. I just don't spend my day talking to random people on the fucking street all day long. <laughs> I mean, that's not a, yeah, that, that I'm in a rush is not a deterrent. Nobody respects that. Nobody believes you. If I'm walking my dog and I have headphones on, right? What am I supposed to do? And sometimes I feel like now people are recognizing like, oh, this guy's just an asshole. Well, obviously, but sometimes I can't hear them. I have my headphones on and they give me a look like, dude, like I tried to say hello to you when I finally put up my head. Like I'm the person that should have seen that they were trying to say hello. Does that make sense? Sure. And I just recognize it too late. And now I've missed the window to say hello. Sure, that makes sense, except for the fact that you have purposely put these headphones on to <laughs> drown out any potential hellos. So I have found that AirPods are not it. You need to wear big, big, big motherfuckers on your ears. Oh, so they can see. Big earphones. Mm-hmm. So they can see that. AirPods, no. Yeah. You got to make it seem that, you know, even when it's dusk, like twilight and, and it's night, you got to put sunglasses on. It makes you look like a douchebag, but it's another layer of don't talk to me. Right, because who wants to talk to a douchebag who's wearing sunglasses at night? Yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> you just don't want to. I just, listen, tr- all jokes aside, I really, and I know people in New York understand this. For whatever reason, I could get along with my next door neighbors, but I don't want to hang out with them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I'm never going to ask, if I'm out of sugar, you know what I'm not going to do? Hey, can I borrow a cup of sugar? That's never going to fucking happen. You know what I mean? Like never going to happen. And in New York, I think good fences make good neighbors. It's like, there you are. And I know I'm not the only person. If you live in an apartment building, I would uh, happily wait for another elevator than to ride the elevator with my next door neighbor. And that is as, that is as much for the neighbor as it is for you. You're just like, I'm not going to subject you to being yes. in the same elevator. I will bite the bullet and I'll wait for the next elevator. This is my good deed. For, this is my way of saying hello to you. And I respect you and your time. Good fences make good neighbors. No, you don't have see the opposite. Good fence, yes. <laughs> and, and, and here's the thing. It's like, it's not only that. It's like, the, if you see them and they don't see you, it's common decency in New York City, right? If you're facing the elevator bay and then you've opened up the door and you see them looking at the elevator bay waiting to get in, it's common decency for me not to join in and to be in the elevator. The right move is for me to wait to make, to make sure that my presence is not felt by the neighbor that is now trying to get in. Hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? That's the protocol. Real protocol is, all right, man, I have no problem waiting. You go up, you get into your apartment, and make sure I never see you. That's just the protocol. <laughs> make sure I right? never see you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, in fact, I'm going to wait down here for an extra five seconds in case you can't find the right key. Whatever it takes so we don't get caught in the same hallway accidentally. Uh, what about just a yeah. little, you don't want, uh, what about a zero time head nod? What about just a quick wave? This is a whole nother game theory that happens. I'm, 
I'm more online of like a head nod and a wave. If that's what it takes, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> if that's what it takes to what qualify as a human on earth. <laughs> no, but here's my problem. I don't want reciprocity to, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want, I want that to be enough of, Hey, like that's now an, it's not an invitation to let's chat. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You want, if I give you a head nod, like, Hey, what's up? That's not a, Hey, let's talk. What's, what's going on? Well, we're talking about here is that's an issue life. of consent. I, I, you were willing to give the head nod. I didn't say anything. I didn't say I would give any more. I gave you a head nod. That's all I was willing to give today. Head nod. And then if they come closer, you're like, no, no, no I, I'm, I'm really in a hurry. I got to go. Then I look like the asshole. <laughs> I guess we just need like a graphic tee or a hat for you that just says I'm in a hurry or we already said hello. I just think people in LA say hello way too fucking much on the sidewalks. I, uh, that's probably, you know, and I'm going to say the New Yorkers have it right. New Yorkers have it right. Listen, and when it counts, here's the thing. When the shit hits the fan sometime in Los Angeles, I don't know if everyone's going to be orderly and neighborly. I think the neighborly stuff is just for show. Hmm. When September 11th happened, fucking New Yorkers, we fucking got each other's fucking backs. And these are the same people who are like, I don't want to fucking talk to you. Never fucking look at me. All that shit. When it counted, we, we were like, all right, we're in this together. I don't know if that's the same case in LA. It's interesting. It's interesting because actually what you describe, well, I'm thinking about this actually. In New York, you live in much tighter, closer proximity to people. You're actually way closer to people. In LA, people are treating as much distance as possible. They live by, they actually live more by the, 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 the good fences make good neighbors, which again, I know people are screaming at their their listening devices. I understand that that's not what that poem is about, but people, uh, it is Robert Frost <laughs> wrote that poem about this. Okay. He was, he was in it. Jesus he wrote that poem in a bungalow in LA. <laughs> he was pissed about his neighbors talking to him. <laughs> Again, I'm not trying to say, I just, those moments in time where you don't want to talk to your neighbor, right? What are you supposed to do? Chris, do you want to talk to all your neighbors? I um, This happened yesterday. Somebody said hi to me. Uh, it seemed with like a, um, with the intention of more. You know, it was like a hi, walk over here and let's chat. I said, hey, put my hand up. And then I immediately turned away and looked busy doing something. So I hear where you're coming from. It mean you know, it's a lot of acting. They're, 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 they're with a dog, sometimes I try to wake up extremely early, not just to work out or something, to avoid all human interaction um, with other dog walkers. Sometimes I'll make weird choices in directions because I choose to go the path less traveled to avoid having to say hello and talk to people. Uh, today's episode of the Dave Chang Show brought to you by the Robert Frost Foundation. That is why I took... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I took the road less traveled. And let me tell you what, that has made all the fucking difference. (laughs) I took the side of the street less populated. (laughs) My whole goddamn day. (laughs) I just, I mean, listen, if somebody says hello and I see them, uh, yes, I wave and nod, but I just, I I don't know how to make it clear. Like, that's it. Well, I don't need to talk. Let me ask you this is, is there another sign that I can be like, Th- high and thumbs up. You know what I mean? 
<laughs> you put a finger over your that, finger over it? your mouth in a wave. <laughs> or this. <laughs> Wait, I liked the full hand over your mouth with the wave. <laughs> this is the no talking wave. So so one hand is hey, hey, and the other hand is fuck you. <laughs> yeah, it's just like this is my social obligation hand, and this is how I feel hand. Is Sevy a social dog, sociable dog? No, he's a neurotic New York dog, and he's a New York dog. So he's not dragging. You. He's an indoors. He's not dragging you into an indoors dog conversation. No. That's, that's good. No, 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 no. Oh, that's a, that's another thing. It's like I don't want my dog to touch your dog. <laughs> and I always tell people, does he like? Is he friendly? I say, no, 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 no. I always say that. No, he's no, he's a no, killer. No. <laughs> Is he friendly? No, 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 no. Well, G- Gabby knows what I'm talking about. She's a she's a somber Washington State person. Just right, walking. Gabby, you guys got it right, with the exception of the hot dog. Seattle's got the ability to not talk to people. Right? Am I wrong in thinking that? No, we even have a name for it. It's called the Seattle Freeze. What? It's kind of our whole thing is not talking to each other. Wow! Beautiful. Wow. And why why not talk to people? What's the reasoning? Because you guys are enlightened and more evolved as people. I think we had a lot of serious and now we're all kind of afraid of each other all the time. And it just doesn't like why why would I? And and let's now talk to Yuno Lee, who clearly is pro talking to everybody. Let me be a oh, uh, a, a Labrador puppy. This is this is. Let me oh let me snuggle God. up with every single person and be like, "Hello, <laughs> hey!" Wildly exaggerated. Great to see you. Would it kill you guys to say hi to your neighbors and just be like, "Hey, what's up? How's it going?" You know, like, I do, I do, I do, I do. Hell. I say that. Hey, what's up? And I try to say, you know, and I walk away. No, that's like. It's like a basic decency thing. You know, you just kind of turn over and just be like, hey, what's up? How's it going? And like, who knows? Who knows? And as a high schooler, when I was growing up, it was good to know your neighbors because if your parents went out of town, they can always call you if the music's too loud or like the party's getting a little crazy. You know, like they'll call you instead of calling the cops or your parents. Right. It's like I'm friends. What, with my are these the parties that you hosted with? Are these the parties you hosted with 50 Cent? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you know, like you just want to you want to get to know them so that you can be courteous and like, hey, am I making too much noise? Just let me know. Like, this is why knowing your neighbors is important. You know, you can make each I other's lives I didn't a know easier. that Yuna Lee was actually the lyricist <laughs> behind the two hits that the game came out with. <laughs> Lloyd Banks or whatever his name is. Like fucking I didn't really know that. Your life experience is the game. Is this uh did, was that is that real? Like, did you ever do that, Chang? Did you have parties when your parents were out of town for a couple of days? That's not a, that's just a sitcom thing, isn't it? That's real. That's real. You guys didn't do this? No, man. No, oh, no, shit. man. My bad. Again, all right. We weren't well. in, we weren't in the club like you, but <laughs> I was I was in the math club. I was in the math club. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Yeah. In the, in the a different club. high school experience. Again, like say hello to everybody. Even here at the row, I don't want to talk to everybody. It is true. I think I'm being friendly. I think that I am being honest. Just a head nod, hello. That's enough. It is true because once you've opened, you know, the, the one thing I will say to Chang's point, I think this is the, he's being a little too grumpy on this, honestly, but I do think to his credit, once you 
pop the top on the conversation, that's, that becomes the bar. So every time I see neighbor X, we've got to have at least a 10 second conversation. And then God forbid one day we sit outside, we, we get caught talking for 15, 18 minutes. Yeah. Then what are we friends? I, no, I think I just came up with a strategy to it. I think I came up with a strategy. I'm just going to say happy new year. Every time I talk to somebody. What the, happy the new logic year. being? Oh, I can't talk to this guy. He's clearly off his rocker. Yeah, he's, he's gone around the bend. <laughs> this guy is insane. This guy is so insane. Guy is totally insane. <laughs> oh, I mean, uh, Dave is basically the rabbit from Alice in Wonderland, just like <laughs> running around with his little pocket watch, being like, "Gotta go, gotta go. I'm very late for an important part date." That's who you can be. Just dress up as the as the fucking what is it? The March Hare and run around. All right, man. We're, we're joined with Tunde. Uh, welcome, man. Thank you. So, over the past, I don't know, couple of years, I feel like we've been ch- chatting here, or there. You've been called. You've called from Detroit. <laughs> right. You've called from Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. You called from New Orleans, mm-hmm. and I can't remember where are you at right now. I'm in Oakland right now. <laughs> so that's four at least four different yeah. cities we've uh identified that you we've you're, you've lived in in 24 months yeah. am i missing any other city yeah i was in lagos then i was in boston i think i called you from boston actually yeah lagos boston okay. uh, i've been in like london mexico yeah a bunch of places so tunde what have you been up to, man? Why are you in Oakland right now? Um, I'm working on a documentary uh, with a friend that we've been doing for the last, since 2019. And so like every year we try and pitch it to somebody and they say no. So we rework it. And so we're like in the third iteration of what this, what this is. And I think finally we have it right. So we'll see. We'll pitch it again. What happens? Chris, Chris, you laughed. Why did you laugh? <laughs> I think it was like the most <laughs> the most Tunday thing of the approach is to be like, well, we pitch it every year around this time and they say no and then we change it and we do it again. That to me says everything both about Tunde as a persistent person, but also just like the world of, of pitching media. Yeah. Well, yes. we pitch it and they say no. Can you give us a, you're being a little cagey Tunde. You want to tell us a little bit about what you're making or, or, or what? Sure. I mean, I, I can try it. So, I, because it's changed a couple of times, but the idea was to first was to like basically tell this super story about capitalism uh, and then use my own personal story as a way to um, share some of the, like the bumps and bruises uh, as they affect people. Um, and so like, using all the different places that I've lived, New Orleans, Detroit, Lagos, um, connecting all these different places and cities together and then connecting them to, to the larger story of exploitation and um, and capital. So yeah, that's sort of what it was. And then, yeah, so it was summarily dismissed. And so we're back <laughs> figuring it out again, you know. But the thing though is, I should say that around the time when we we really started like, Pitching was, you know, 2020, 
George Floyd, you know, there was a whole, there was a whole thing. And so there was interest in, in like these sort of stories around race and class. Uh, but, you know, as we moved away from that, I think interest has, has dipped. So we had sort of, um, reflecting that change by, you know, making some changes to what the story is, but it's still about capitalism and like my life ish. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember reading, uh, one of the posts on, on your, your site and talking about how you had originally intended for it to be published somewhere else, but that once coronavirus hit, just the, the, the sort of priorities shifted. Right. And like this piece that was once timely had, had changed. So, you know, what have you, you've, you've changed your documentary. You got some notes back and they were like, this is great. Could you just try it again with capitalism? As a <laughs> Yo, they, 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 they straight up said, you know, like they're only buying true, true crime. So, you know, that's like, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but we've had, you know, we've had like some people who have been very generous, you know, and like just straight up, you know, um, uh, forthright, you know, no, no bullshit. Just like, this is where things are. I think this is how you should position um, the, you know, the documentary so that, you know, it, it sells. Um, but even the industry itself is in, is in turmoil. We were talking to a producer and like in between the time we had the first call and the second call, the person who connected us was like, let go. Cause like the business was, you know, changing. So, yeah. Yeah, that is that is that's the world of Los Angeles <laughs> at the moment. Um, Tunde, we spoke uh, I don't know a month ago or so, and you told me you were working on some products. Uh, where where were you at with that, and why? Were you what is exactly you working so everyone well, knows? I mean, can we just can we back up to say why I, I reached out to you in, in the first place? Yeah. yeah. So. I don't know how it is for you, but like, you know, you're, you're pretty, um, well, you all are both um, successful in the, in the things that you do, uh, publishing and then, um, they with food and all that shit. But I feel like, um, I feel like the closer or the more I I get to do the things that I want to do, the more I realize how far money is away from what I'm trying to do. But at the same time, how money is central to everything, you know? Um, and then being from Nigeria, the sort of social economics situation there is, is dire, to say the least. And so I had this, you know, this idea to start a fund, an investment fund. And I'm like, who do I know? Who do I know that knows somebody that, um, that maybe has a fund? And so I reached out to a friend who reached out to Chris, who reached out to you to say like, yo, I want to start this, um, start this fund. So that was like two year, two years ago or a year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, and so I've been working on that. Like, how do I raise capital and then sort of deploy capital in a way that it affects the people in my mind who need it the most? And I think from a global, global perspective, um, Nigeria, West Africa, Africa in general, and just, you know, the third world, these are places where capital has, you know, purposefully missed. And so, so that was the work that I was, um, I was trying to do and specifically, uh, uh, an impact fund or, you know, some sort of fund that, that invests in food, in food businesses. So that's why I, I reached out to you. 
And so parallel to that work, you know, I have been dabbling in sort of like launching these little um, demonstration projects, right? So CPG stuff. Um, I started first with Iru, which is an amazing condiment that I use in all my cooking. It's fermented uh, locust beans. So I partnered up with the folks at Burlap and Barrel, amazing people, Ethan, Ori, great people. And we imported that stuff from Nigeria and we started selling it. And then I'm like, I wanted to do something a little more uh, experimental. So I, <laughs> I decided to package salt and sell it for $100 a piece. So I did that too. Um, and then now what I'm thinking about and the, the, sort of like my current project is alcohol. So I have this 375 ml bottle of spirit that is made with the Iru that we import from Nigeria. And we're selling it at $192.78 because um, that is the amount that you get when you divide all the people of drinking age in America by Nigeria's external debt. So, <laughs> Chris, this, this like, <laughs> I love where the pricing has meaning, man. I love you're making a point with the pricing. It's very strong. So, very strong the idea is like, you know, the US has this like exorbitant privilege because the dollar is, you know, the lifeblood of, of global trade. And that has consequences for, for places like Nigeria. It, it also has consequences for like people in the US, usually people of color. But generally, the people who it affects the most are um, people in Africa and other third world countries. Uh, and so, like, if as a U.S. citizen or as somebody who lives in the U.S., you benefit uh, directly, uh, most likely indirectly from the, the dollar privilege that you have, then there's a, you know, there's a sort of like a concomitant con responsibility to do something about it. Uh, and so we're sort of like packaging that responsibility in a delicious really delicious drink and then you pay for your privilege so like put put simply <laughs> if a if a hipster <laughs> can spend 17 dollars on like a craft beer without batting an eye right they can probably they can probably they can spend pay 10 17 50 yeah yeah so hey can we can we uh i mean that i love i love that pricing model can we talk about uh iru for a second yeah because <laughs> i i've never i have not encountered this but I was—I recently was uh, with a Ghanaian chef who was talking about um, dawa dawa, which I think is maybe—is it similar? Same it's the thing? same thing, yeah. Dawa okay. dawa iru so, sumbala. Um, it goes by different different names. Okay, so this stuff, Chang, have you ever encountered any of this stuff, like fermented locust bean products? I have not. I have uh, not. So we have to Tunde correct me if I'm or maybe maybe I have, maybe I have, but it was called like, you know. Something different, so like, or someone to credit me for. If I'm wrong, Tunde, but it, somebody describes me as like it's this fermented locust bean, and ha, like the locust bean itself contains like the highest percentage of glutamates of like any naturally occurring like plant or, or, Wait, or, or, or vegetable. What are a, a glutamates? I'm not uh, like uh, umami. Basically, it has like the highest umami of like anything you can eat. So, they, like, I tell everybody is like it's like vegan fish sauce. You know, it smells like fish sauce. Yeah, it smells exactly like fish um, sauce. And but it it also it tastes a bit like dark chocolate and cheese, if you could find a comparison. But it is so 
strong and, and pungent and it just adds so much flavor to everything. I, I, I literally use it in everything that I cook. You know, sometimes even in like sweet, uh, um, sweet stuff, I just put a little bit in there. It's amazing. And, and it, they have like the iru is, you, you can get dry iru, uh, you can get wet iru, you can get powder iru, um, just different, yeah, different vibes. What, what, is the ta- what is the taste like? So that's what I'm saying. It tastes like, imagine dark chocolate, cheese, and a little bit of fish sauce. Just put all that together. <laughs> not is that appealing, Dave, or not appealing? It's amazing. Like, yeah, I, I'm surprised it hasn't like taken over the world because it is also nutritious. It's like high in some vitamins and like iron and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, hey, Tunde, that's sort of some of the stuff that we talk about when we get derailed when we just talk about random things is <laughs> what is uh, what are the reasons that what are the mechanisms needed to get iru widespread right what is holding iru okay. back so i think spiritually you and i uh maybe on different sides of this um and it's an interesting place to be right i feel like when, because you know, like I call you and we talk about, you know, like how do you start a fund? You like don't start a fund. It's crazy out here, and we start talking about like uh, about the food, like our different foods. And I think, and if I'm mis mischaracterizing you, just let me know. But I think that your vision is to get, say, you know, Asian, maybe more specifically like Chinese or or Korean food into like as many kitchens as possible. And then you might find a parallel between acceptance of cuisine to like cultural acceptance in a way that that culture doesn't have to assimilate. Uh, I am not interested in, in like having Uru take over the world. I'm just surprised that it hasn't. I feel like there is some sort of mechanism and maybe we, we talked about this too, that when you know, a food becomes, you know, or something like cultural product becomes widely dispersed or consumed, that it loses, it loses the sort of like intimacy um, that it has and that connection to to the culture. And so it also loses the power to like make people um, relate to the product the same way they relate to the people. And you find that, like, I think so many people have, have said this, uh, about Mexican food, like how many Americans love Mexican food, but don't, you know, aren't fans say of you know Mexicans, you know. So that's sort of like the way I think about it. I'm not like there's sort of like capitalist machine and engine that like creates this mass production or at least mass proliferation of a product. It's not something that I'm interested in. And uh, ironically, Iru itself is it's wildly harvested. And so the Iru tree is not is not possible to like cultivate because it, it grows wildly and it takes I don't know how many hundreds of years to grow and be like this huge tree. So people just like um harvest it and you know it's it's used across West Africa. So when you think about it, our idea of like what 
production and scale means in practice and what and what we think it means are two different things like for us we think you know let's put it in you know a factory or let's like mass, mass produce it but the environment is, is already like mass producing it is just being harvested in like small intimate quantities and then sold uh, widely so that's my little response to your question hmm. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, in, to some degree, I think we're always like reverse engineering. I think the goal is the same. I think the methodology in getting there is very different. But I think my question really, again, is what are the reasons as to acceptance, whether people have it in their homes, yeah. right? Which is not your goal, but the acceptance as to, oh, I know what that is. Yeah, can I? Right? Like, how do you get there where people are like, I, I want to taste it. I want to know more. I want to yeah. use it. I, why can't I buy it at my local supermarket? So can I, that to me is like sort of hand in hand with yeah. acceptance. Can I, can I try just re, just add to that, Tunde, really quickly? So I think I, I hear what you're saying, Tunde. Like the fact that we all drink coffee every single morning from Ethiopia hasn't brought us any closer <laughs> to understanding Ethiopians. Like that, I, I get that for sure. Yeah. But I think, and and I totally get what you're saying. You know, uh, acceptance of the ingredient doesn't necessarily or widespreadness of the ingredient doesn't mean anything. But a different question is like, why haven't Dave or I, who are pretty food literate, yeah. <laughs> been exposed to this? Why haven't we heard of it? And why don't we have it? Like that's, that's, a, that's a, mind-boggling. That's a fantastic question. And I think, let me, so there are two things I want to say about that. And the first thing may not be connected to the second thing. Do you, do you in your different like food cultures, are there foods that, in that culture, people like eat but don't like also fuck with at the same time. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So Iru is one of those things. Like people, even Nigerians or Yoruba people say, people where I'm from, some, some people can't stand the smell. Like they hate it, you know? But if you are eating a goosey, for example, like, or a fo, which is, um, is, uh, it's not spinach, but the, the, the plant is called shoko. It's like a stewed um, leafy green. If you're eating those two dishes, which are kind of central to the, the palate of, of Yoruba cooking, iru is, iru is in those dishes, right? But there's something about the way it smells, the way it tastes, just as an ingredient by itself that puts a lot of people off. So I think maybe that's one reason. Um, the second reason is just, you know, timing and exposure. There's a there's a story that I th- I think might be true about you, Dave. The that bow situation, the open face bow, is that what it's called? Did you mm-hmm. did you make that popular? It, it, that was you, yeah. Uh, I I I think it was the yeah. yes. I would probably have to take credit as to popularizing. Yeah. I feel like it it was you know let's say like it went through this, it was like you did it, then it got picked up by say the New York Times, you know, and they wrote rave reviews and then, you know, Bon Appetit, just like the media machines started working. And then now like you go to a place, you know, because I apparently travel a lot and you go to like the most randomest small town in America and nobody serves bow any other way unless you go to like a traditional, you know, dim sum place. And like that's what's there. And I think like the media machine is so powerful. And we like to think of virality as as organic, 
but they're they're like inflection points. They're still gatekeepers. They're still people who need to like like you, like Dave and Chris, who who need to hear it, say it, say it a few more times, and then it starts to it starts to pick up. And it's the whole like devil in the devil in devil wears Prada thing, you know, where you like you have this disdain for like um, high fashion, but then the way it sort of interacts in your daily life is invisible, but it still affects the choices that you that you make. And, and, I, and I think it's the same thing with food, especially food here, uh, food here in America, that there are certain, you know, institutions. Um, and now that's a little bit, it's a little bit more democratic, but it's still kind of insular, you know, and I'm talking about, you know, the, say the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, Bon Appetit, you know, and, and these other regional publications that 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 sort of shake up the culture or gin up the culture, and they you know, and they're picking things, and those things get filtered down. And so maybe you know, Dave, if if you talk about Iru ten more times, you know, in the next ten months, it, it's everywhere. Well, the, the, so I have two things I wanted to they're they're related but sort of not simultaneously. Um, in terms of uh, Korean culture, we have something called like chongukjang or like uh, how we ferment soybeans is very mm-hmm. different than the Japanese make me so. And then you have dangjang, which again, I say is the gnarly, more, more f- just crazy strong version of miso, but it's not miso, right? I love it. But I would imagine that cheesy, funky, umami thing is very similar. I have to imagine, Mm -hmm. right? Very similar. Um, But when I talk about acceptance and the mechanisms and levers that need to be pulled, it's a long game, right? So right now, miso is probably understood and used by, say, like 5% of the American population, right? And growing. Every time they go get sushi, they get the cup of miso soup, right? You know that people don't know anything about miso soup because Basically, nobody eats it properly. You're supposed to eat it with chopsticks and things like this. And most of the miso in America is poorly made. It's loaded with salt. There's no real nuance, et cetera, et cetera. I have to look at that from someone that's tried to make versions of that and say, okay, in order for us to America to find acceptance of, say, dangjang or even chonggukjang, which is the most gnarly version of it, right? People will leave your house. It <laughs> smells like, you know. It literally, my, my, my children would leave the house because it smells right, like poo to right. them, right? It smells like the stinkiest, stinkiest cheese. Oh, I know. And yeah. I love it, yeah. right? And it's like, okay, now, now you have this spectrum of where, where it's at. You basically have the, the, the most um, watered-down miso shit that's basically just salt, yeah. right, with umami. And then you have the super, super gnarly stuff that the Koreans make. Most people will say, when I say most people, not everybody, they will say, oh, and I've had this conversation. Why don't you just make it like the Japanese? Why don't you just call it miso? And I have to say, no, because they're made totally different fucking ways. Never fucking compare that Korean miso. Don't ever fucking say that it's Korean miso. It's not. Yeah. It's like extremely wrong. So number one, you got to educate. So when I say one of the mechanisms is always education. Mm-hmm. Number two is how do you make that education where somebody doesn't feel bad? And I think the only way for me currently, and I loosely hold this idea, is through just mass appeal and mass, like seeing it everywhere. And they finally sort of surrender to it. And then that becomes the floor. 
And then you can eventually learn. I don't expect everybody to learn about Deng Zhang or even appreciate it. But my benchmark culturally is when white America or just America in general, the Bon Appetit, the New York Times food section start writing about Tongguk Zhang, right? This super, super fermented, stinky soup, right? With soybeans that you eat with rice. It's delicious. But again, your house sounds like a stink bomb went off. Do you you think... When they start writing about them, when they say, hey, start cooking this, that is like, oh, shit. Okay. Then some mechanism, something's happened. Okay. And and those things that have happened, whatever they may be, are the same mechanisms as to why Iru may not be accepted. When I say accepted, it's not mass appeal, but it's more like, okay, what needs to happen for these gatekeepers to be like, oh, yeah. I back this. Yeah, I, I feel like the way you describe this dish, I, I just have my doubts that it could ever really, <laughs> it could ever really blow up, right? So, because like, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking like, yeah, this is something that like, you know, a food section would write about because it's new and it's like, it's 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 trendy and, you know, we love trends. Um, but then how, how do we take it from trendy to just widely accepted? And I think that language pay, plays a role in that, you know. Um, and so oftentimes, even when I'm saying Iru, I say fermented locust beans too, just so that people know what it is. And even as a complete uh, misnomer, because locust beans are, you know, really like the way they're described, they are, uh, 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 you know, a commercial product that is used in different ways. So I can't even pronounce back to you what I just heard you say, Dave. Um, so I yeah. imagine like that. No worries. Korean people will say like, I don't know how to pronounce it. Either, so don't worry. <laughs> I imagine that like that is a, that, that's a, it's a, you know, that, yeah, that, that might be, that might be difficult. That might be difficult. Um, but, the, but, but Tunde, like in the event that whatever those variables are, clearly one of which is education, right? And there's a whole host of others, right? They all working together to getting something accepted and then next thing you know again little kids are now packing korean seaweed in their fucking lunch boxes then shit is crazy right but you got to use these as as sort of benchmarks to be like okay something's happened culturally and i don't know why we don't have more conversations as to what are those things well, that look, change right what, and when this, I, sorry, I, this is what you and i were, were talking about on the phone um when we're talking about how like the say predominance or like popularity of Korean food now. And then sort of like tracking that with say K-pop and K-dramas. Cause you know, like Nigerian music is having a moment, like a global uh, moment now. And so people are talking, uh, you know, listening to Nigerian pop music and they're talking about jollof rice. So I think like to your point about education, maybe education happens, but in like these weird or these more like, uh, uh, um, more subtle cultural ways, you know, music and like film and shit like that. Yeah. And I, I'd say having, again, I'm not a culinary anthropologist, but I do think that there's a combination, a whole host of factors, but some major ones are, are the fact that, okay, Chinese food still unknown for the most part, but more accepted. Right. And that acceptance started with Chinese takeout, Chinese delivery, you know, uh, Panda Express, et cetera. They also, People now understand a lot more about Japanese food, people eating sushi, people know more about Southeast Asia in general. And I'm not trying to lump Asia, 
together at all. But what I want to explain as to why I think Korean food has become sort of this huge thing, not just because of K-pop and the sort of excellence that we're seeing in film and cinema uh, and TV. It's that like as a culture, people are constantly looking for things that are familiar, but different. And there's not much more movement that I can think will happen with, say, Chinese food and Japanese food and other foods of Asia. But Korean food, because it's working in conjunction with a lot of the things that are happening culturally. But I think one of the main ones is people are now more familiar with Chinese and Japanese, et cetera. So it allows them to be like, oh, that's familiar, but new and different. How long that window is for Korean food? I don't know. But we're in there right now. And then the next thing might be something else. But right? but what is like, like what is your? I'm 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 curious about this. What is your hope? Like your end game? Like is it sort of that you know to to be crass that like Asian people are more accepted in America or Asian food is more accepted or like or maybe more specifically like kids don't get bullied when they bring in food to school? Like when you think about the the work that you're doing with food and how you're trying to um, you know inserted into the consciousness of Americans? Like, what's your end game? I think my end game is that all of those things can be true. But I think the real end game is that I want people to see that everything, regardless of where you're from or what you're eating, everybody sort of wants to eat the same thing. Right? We all want to eat something delicious. The techniques available to us, whether it's fermentation or baking or frying, grilling, whatever, it's all there. When you really think about it, there, while there's different ways of cooking, what we find to be delicious are relatively universal. And that's what I always like to do. That Venn diagram of something where people are eating something and they're like, I don't know what it is, but it's really delicious. and It's familiar to me. And they find out like, oh, it wasn't Italian. I was like, no, it's Korean. I want people to have that understanding <laughs> because I found that, that telling somebody, hey, dumbass, you're an idiot doesn't work right the only way for that self-realization to happen is if they see it themselves yeah i mean i think and it's not just asian food it's like everything it's like oh that's really delicious i didn't know that's delicious and i think once that's part of the conversation then a lot of things can change yeah i would say yeah to, to that exact point dave i think that when i first smelled dawa dawa iru at, at this thing i was at like a month and a half two months ago I was amazed. <laughs> I, I'm always amazed by this shit. I love when when cultures and cuisines that seem not related whatsoever arrive at the, sort of the same conclusion in different ways. Like fermented locust bean smelled like fish sauce to me. I was like, these two very different cultures both were like, holy shit, this is delicious. It stinks, but it's really, right. really delicious. You know, like that shit's cool. And I think that, you know, end game or not, I don't think, and Dave, you tell me if you feel otherwise. I don't think that if a lot of people start eating ramen, chili crunch, nori, gim, whatever, like suddenly the kids are going to be treated nicer <laughs> on the playground. Right? No. Nobody believes that. No, but it's, but, but, but Yang, and it is my belief, and I don't know, Tunde, we've talked about this, we've talked about a bunch of shit, but it's my belief that it's not our fucking story to finish. We all want it to be done in our fucking lifetime. I think it's getting around the table. <laughs> I mean, Tunde, like that's, that's sort of like, I know a lot of the dinners you've thrown have just been not trying to solve anything through food. And I think you downplay like the role of food, except to get people in the room. Yeah. Right? The food is there to get people in the room. 
And and if you get people in the room with deliciousness, and I mean, I've ha- I had the same experience recently too, where I was like, I was having a dinner, really enjoying the conversation with people, all really having a, a marveling at the deliciousness of the food. And over the course of like three hours, I realized like, oh, one of these people at this table who I really have come to like in the last couple of hours, we could not have more diametrically opposed political views. Mm. <laughs> I was like, hey, at least like, otherwise there'd be no fucking way we would ever sit at a table. And the only thing we agree on as a starting point is this shit's delicious. Right. So I think like that's, that's kind of, you know, well, Chris, let, for my part, let, let me ask you a question. Uh, and this is like piggybacking on what Dave just said. This Venn diagram that exists, right? We find commonality in the places where all of our sort of like our palates uh, intersect in a way. But I, you know, and I'm, you know, well, let me just say that they, that that maybe the part where we don't intersect is just as vibrant. You know, there's many more many more um, dishes on that side. Of course, and that's that's like my question. My question is like, what do we do in those spaces? In the in the spaces where we don't agree. You know, and right. and and where, so, where so, like yeah. yeah, everybody, all my yeah. So I can get together with a big room of people who all like mapo tofu, but as soon as I bring out the stinky tofu, they're gonna be like, "Whoa, you fucking weirdo!" <laughs> right? <laughs> get away from me! Right? Like that's what you're talking yeah. about. Is is the rest of those spaces? Yeah, I would be one of those people. I would say, "Why the <laughs> fuck you bring that?" smells like fucking diarrhea i don't so, want that I, the answer is when dave and i can get along but it's okay i hate i hate stinky tofu it's okay for me to say that you know what no, i mean but, but, i'm not trying but, to take but, away but the problem is that is that i guess it's okay in in like certain spaces but they're like their consequences right um their consequences like say for the kid who like brings some shit that like you know it's not the cool asian dish it's like the stinky shit that and then their consequences the consequences when um, you know certain people get compensated for certain things and certain people don't, you know, because maybe what you know you you have you know uh, what's the, the word that people use? You have sort of like elevated a dish that people found problematic, you know, in terms of a, of, of of the taste taste uh, profile. So I'm I'm looking, yeah, I'm looking at the consequences. I'm looking at like that at that side of the picture. I think my work. Or even though it's just like who I am as a person, that sort of antagonism, you know, um, where you you correct mm. people um, with you, or you correct people uh, uh, stridently. I agree with you in a sense, Dave. Like I don't think that's what works. Or if if that's going to work, you need everybody correcting like a minority, right? Uh, as opposed to the the minority correcting the a majority, but like we do need to figure out like how we how we create for lack of of of, of a better word more parity, you know whether we're, we're talking about flavors, you know like you know flavors from Africa shouldn't be disregarded and it should be treated the same way as flavors from Europe and and other places. Or we're talking about people, uh, which I think ultimately is 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 a thing that I that I think about because you know food is just food is the consequence of people. Uh, and mm-hmm. how do we get to a place where, you know, we start treating people not better because that's like some, you know, you know, esoteric bullshit. You know what I mean? Like materially better, not like just materially. Does that make sense? Like. No, yeah. it does. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And it's, it it's, does. I think it's in those, uh, 
is how we treat the differences. I think that's where we find, where we can find some peace. Well, this is sort of related to this. This is the second question I want to ask you. And this was sort of brought up and, and it was also brought up in a, uh, a recently conversation with a bunch of journalists and they sort of quoted us and, and uh, I want to say pull quoted me, but basically I said, you know, this is probably about three, four months ago. We, Chris and I did a podcast on food media and more or less, I said something to the lines that there's nothing left to be discovered in food. Right. <laughs> and I think a lot of people took offense to that. And what, if they really listen to it, and let me just rephrase to, to clarify, I'm doubling down on that. There's nothing left to discover. Discover being like, I didn't know, but it didn't right. exist. Right. I, I think if you say it on the literal term, it's like, yeah, people could get upset. Like, oh my God, there's all this food that people aren't writing about or yeah. talking about. And it's delicious. Right. You can't say there's, there's stories of farmers that, have to be told their foods that they're making that need to be out there. I am not saying that's discovery at mm-hmm. all. <laughs> I'm saying that that is now culture accepting that something is now acceptable when mm-hmm. it wasn't <laughs> right. I think it's a very big difference. Discovery is literally like something brand new, but brand new to yeah. who, right? I have a- and and that's why I think you can't say discover anymore. It's all about what is now acceptable. What story has it been told by the gatekeepers? Right. I um I have a sort of like uh yeah something to say about that. I I sort of say the same thing, but not publicly uh, to myself. But I say it about restaurants. Like I this you know every whatever cycle it is, this hype about new restaurants and like who is doing the most innovative thing. And I'm like, yo, there is no new flavor in the world. I'm sorry. You know, like all the flavors, flavors are like colors, you know, maybe they're new combinations, but I think we've generally seen all the, all of the combinations that can exist. If you're not talking about like different, like Pantone numbers. Yeah. That's a different thing. But people or some people like present food as, as if, they're, you know, telling us something, something new and different. Like, like there, there is, I think, a certain level of humility that is necessary with food, um, because if you don't know something, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It just means that you don't know it. Uh, and I, I, exactly. I feel, I, I really feel strongly about that, especially when people talk about like doing something new and different. I'm like. Mm-hmm. Like, are you inventing something that like mouths have never had before? Like, what are you doing? It's still, you know, <laughs> e- even before the term umami uh, was in popular consciousness, like people were saying the same thing but differently. Like in 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 Yoruba, you would say something like if something was deeply, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, something was tasty. What's the word for tasty? But like, um, whatever. You, you say, you, 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 you say like, this is sweet, but it's not, I mean, that's a translation in English, but it, it doesn't mean like, like sugar. It means like it is, it's just like deeply flavorful, you know? So mm. I think there's a, you know, people repackage the same thing in different language and then they present, they present it to us as, as something new. And then sometimes we're gullible enough to believe them. And then when we try it, we'll be like, oh shit, well, this is reminiscent of something else. You know, it's not, 
you know, whatever. Yeah, basically, I fuck with with, with what you're saying. <laughs> I, I I got one more thing to add, and then let's get into something trivial, like a top five that we told you about. <laughs> um, so th- this idea of discovering something, the operator being discover, right? And it's discover to who? Um, I always think about the story of Alex Atala, the chef down in Brazil, who's very, very supportive and uh, works very closely with all the Amazonian sort of landowners and tribes and they're trying to protect as much of it as possible and he always goes on these trips and he's in this small house on the river somewhere in the amazon and he's eating this soup that this woman made for him that he's you know built this relationship with and he's drinking eating the soup and he's like wow this is delicious tastes like tom yum like a thai thai lemongrass soup and he goes to her and says like I didn't know that you have lemongrass here. Like, where's the lemongrass? She's like, what, what's lemongrass? What are you right. talking about? It's like, where's that flavor coming from? Oh, it's the ants. Tastes like lemongrass. And she goes to Alex and basically paraphrases. No, it tastes like ants. Mm. You know, like real story. Did we discover ants? No. <laughs> Did she give a shit about what lemongrass is? No. But he now puts an ant dish on the menu to popularize, to tell that right. story. Right. But now. That has changed. Now, who's telling that story about the ants? I don't know. But now it's this cool thing to, to, to talk about. But it's not discovery yeah. at all. I, so I don't want to tell a journalist that they're fucking wrong, but they're wrong. These are stories that just haven't been told. That is not discovered. Yeah. I think in restaurants in America, and you all can you know, give me your perspective on this, I think the best that folks are doing is contrasting or whatever it is. They, they're taking flavors and then they, you know, they add textures and colors. They're just like putting things together that, you know, are familiar, but like repurposing them and, 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 and then, you know, sort of like juxtaposing them in, in, in different ways. And that, and that is like that to me, or maybe that was earlier the definition of, innovation in food it's like how much can you contrast i think now things have moved things maybe have moved away and there's like this uh uh appreciation for um for for the truth you know like for the for what food was before the contrasts and all that shit came um but yeah i repeat i uh i agree with you um yeah um well, is there uh, before we get into top five, is there anything that uh, you got coming up that you're working on that you want people to stop by to see uh, besides buying the Iru and uh, the alcohol? Is there places where they can discover this? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think you, I have a website. It's from Lagos.com. And <clears throat> yeah, and my, the shit is on that. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's it in my life. Um, because you've lived in so many different places, <laughs> let's just stick to domestically. Yeah. I'm curious because so you're you know a man what? of, I want to ask a question. I think, I'm sorry. Can I ask a question? Sure. This is a food question. It's, do you, do both of you, do you all think, do you think that, um, like when you hear, when you hear the term, like, uh, you know, a, a balanced dish, 
do you feel like it it means something specific that it should have like some acid, some fat, some crunch, some is that what comes to mind or or do you see that differently? Because I, ha- I had mm. an experience where I was doing a dinner and uh, my food was shitted on by the people I was working with. Uh, I mean, we came to terms and we, you know, it all worked out. But um, but I kept hearing stuff like, "Yo, the, your food is not bright enough," and they meant like, "Yo, add some some acid, add some vinegar, some something in it." And I'm just like, "Yeah, yeah, this is not what I want to do, though," you know. So, yeah, well, curious. yeah, well, it's important. Yes. I do believe in balance as a idea, right? There's certain things like pizza or a hamburger balance, right? When you eat things collectively, it's got texture. It's got sweet, salty, sour, bitter, umami, all of it, right? Char from meat. These are things that people don't realize that are balanced. But when you're cooking for people, wherever they may be, I think what I always try to put into reference is who am I cooking for? Right. I'm not trying to profile them per se, but if I'm cooking for a bunch of cigarette smokers, right, then yeah, you gotta, you gotta increase the salt and the acidity so much. If you're cooking for people that I would say people in Los Angeles, I would say now have a more, uh, I wouldn't say they're gonna take this the wrong way, dulled palate than say people in New York. And I'm not gonna say that they're dulled in the negative way. They're dulled in the sense because people in LA are, eating more vibrant, big, bold mm-hmm. flavors, whether it's tacos, Thai, Korean. It's not like you're running. It's not chicken fingers and grilled cheese sandwich bullshit. You know what I mean? It's not like tuna, tuna fish salad that I would to characterize a lot of people on the East Coast. But, you know, there are balances. When I'm cooking in Japan, I know to reduce my salt t- intake. I just came back from Taiwan and I felt the salt intake in the food was much less. Now, if I cook a dinner there, they probably said everything's too heavy handed, it's too fatty and there's not, it's just not balanced, right? They probably feel that way. So I tend to have, uh, I want to get an understanding of the scope of the individuals that I'm cooking for first and foremost, the the time and place. Chris. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, uh, I have a feeling today that you bump you bump up against this idea of food having to be in balance. <laughs> like I, I imagine, and I and I, I have some of this too, where I think about the word balance, and I think so it has to be flat, <laughs> it has to be like perfectly level right. across like a, a two dimensional plane. Like it has to be pizza, right? If everything was balanced, wouldn't it all just taste the same, right? Like that's that's sort of the the confusing thing about about flavor balance for me. I think that flavor balance is a valuable thing in a dish, but it can mean wildly different things. When you think about the image of balance, I could put a one pound weight of something on one side of a board and a one pound weight of something on the other, and that would be in balance. But I could also put, you know, like 37,000 mice on one side and one elephant on the other, right? Like I could do all sorts of things to balance things out. And uh, I think my, I, I won't go on and on about this, but I think that one of the big revelations for me about balanced flavors came when I was eating in Thailand and I had always thought of balance as this thing that exists within a dish. Right. You have, you have some heat. So you want a little bit of sweet, you have some bitterness or, you know, you want some acidity, you've got to balance it with some fat. Like these are the, this is the way it works, right? You have some heat, you need to balance it with some fat. I remember eating in Thailand and saying, Whoa, this dish is way too spicy or way too salty or way too acidic. Yeah. And someone being like, yeah, obviously dummy, like you eat that after you've had a bite of the other thing. 
And that just, I mean, like, it seems very basic, very simple, like that I wouldn't just eat the relish mm. by itself without like the rice or without the, 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 the salad or whatever it was next to it or the meat. But for me, that was like, before I judge a dish or a, somebody's food as balanced or imbalanced, like I got to understand how I'm supposed to fucking eat it. So like, that was the big revelation for me is like balance can come in like many different forms and can be, you know, achieved in different ways. Yeah. So I do think I look for balanced things and like it, it, it presents itself when I eat something and I'm just like, Ooh, I really am immediately overcome with a craving for something else. That's going to like make, like make this feel complete. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, yeah, I, I hear you both. I feel like for me, it's super contextual. Like what you said, Dave, like depending on who's eating the food, you know, that's, that's one question. But the question of where the food is coming from, which is my hands, you know, everything that comes out from my hands is balanced. Even if it's too sweet, that, that's what it's supposed to be. Like ice cream, ice cream is sweet, you know, you know, but I like a little salt in my ice cream too. I like some spice in my ice cream too sometimes, but each of those things are what they are and they are to me balanced. And I think that there is, there's definitely a, like a culinary um, hegemony that uh, this is just my opinion um, that like prioritizes like certain, like a certain equation in food. And this hegemony is, you know, European to, to, to a certain extent. Um, and even going down to the textures too, like, oh, this needs some crunch. I'm like, why? It's, it's not supposed to be crunchy. Well, add some crunch to it. I'm like, it's crazy to me. But anyway, thank you for answering my question. Um, before we get you out of here today, your travel, yeah. you spend time in various cities. And I know that's, uh, we could talk about international. We'll save that for another day. But where are your favorite places to eat in America right now? What do you think has got the best food for you, right? And I don't say the best but for you, where do you like to eat? And give us a very reductive top five. Like cities? Cities, okay, yeah. Well, definitely Detroit, because that's where I spend a lot of my time. And Detroit has a good like mix of stuff to get. Like You can get uh, Middle Eastern, Yemeni, um, yeah, a whole bunch of shit from that. Uh, then New Orleans, no doubt, because you all know why. I think New Orleans is like the greatest food city in America in terms of like its own food culture. Uh, so that's Detroit, New Orleans. Um, I want to say like the Bay Area because here it's like, it's, huh, what's the word? It's like they're doing all this sort of like experimental shit is happening here, but it's accessible, if that makes sense. Um and then it's also like a wide variety of things that you can get, like just different kinds of food. Um, where else? I guess, I guess, you know, you have to say New York. That's obligatory. Um, and that's four, yeah? Yeah. yeah. You are definitely leaving out uh, two cities that you spent time in, um, <laughs> Boston and Pittsburgh. <laughs> Boston and Pittsburgh. <laughs> And, and this ain't on me today. This is on you. I'm going to leave them out. Uh, because, <laughs> I think that's what I would say is uh, Atlanta. Atlanta is, yeah, oh. Atlanta is a good food city. And shout out to Pittsburgh and Boston, but, you know, there can only be five. 
Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. A man of conviction. It's a good list. It's a good list. No other holes you want to poke there? Sorry. Nothing? No other challenges to the list? No, I, I, I like Detroit. Uh, I haven't been there in a long time um, for what's going on uh, there. New Orleans. I mean, my only exception would probably be the Bay Area. Tell me why. Uh, Tell us why real quick. I'd probably remove that. Just because I have to always make fun of the uh, Bay Area. Oakland is the only part of the Bay Area that's cool, quite frankly. So, yeah, I would I would exclude San Francisco and I would just put okay. Oakland. I would say L.A., honorable mention. I, I don't go there a lot, and but I think that there's just so many different pockets in that place. And, yeah, so... And uh, because Tunde uh, intentionally left them out of the top five, I'm, I'm putting Pittsburgh and Boston <laughs> in my top five. I was going to say, Dave, he created a, a, a top five. He created an honorary mention category and Boston and yeah. Pittsburgh still outside. Dishonorable. Still outside of the Dishonorable mention. Boston. Yeah. No, Boston is great. Um, yeah. Boston is great. Comfort Kitchen in Boston. Yeah, Boston is great. A great yeah. restaurant. So, yeah. Um. All right, Tunde, we'll let you go. Uh, we've taken enough of your time, hour plus, but uh, appreciate it. Um, and let us know when you stop by LA. I will. Thank you all so much for your time. This is great. Thank you. Well, that's Tunde Way uh, from Lagos, Nigeria. You should check out his website from lagos.com. Support, get familiar with Iru. I certainly will. And uh, we will get you a buy and sell. And I think we're trying to get Chris Bianco on this week. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. And uh, yeah, give us five stars. We'll talk to you later.